your attention, please. Somebody at my table still talking. We'll let them. We are privileged today to have the return of Dr. Keith Lloyd. Dr. Lloyd from Kent State Stark uh, was with us for a month last year and taught us about the Old Testament from a historic and literary per perspective. We're going to do the same thing over the next three Sundays and then probably one more Sunday in the month of April to, to make the four weeks. We're going to do it on the New Testament from a literary and historic perspective. We all have gotten to know Dr. Lloyd, so I won't go through his resume because I don't remember it. You want to know the truth. <laughs> On a multiple choice test, I might be able to get some of it right, but we don't have such a test with us. Let us open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this class and our teacher. We also ask a blessing upon his work with the students at Kent State where he teaches English courses and Bible history courses. As we endeavor to understand what he wishes to impart to us today, we ask your blessing on that knowledge as we grow in our Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, is this on? Yeah. It is. How's everyone doing today? I don't know why, but I always look into that light when I walk past it. There's something about it, like an open window, you know, it just attracts your eye. <coughs> it's nice to be back, and thank you for having me back. Um, I did actually make it to the New Testament last time, but not very much, just kind of the intertestamental period. Um, if you have your Bibles, let's look at a couple of passages first. This is interesting. I, I, I brought a different translation than probably anybody's used to, um, the New English Bible. Uh, but you'll probably recognize this. When all things began, the Word already was. The Word dwelt with God, and what God was, the Word was. The Word then was with God at the beginning, and through Him all things came to be. No single thing was created without Him. Now you probably recognize where that comes from. The first verses of John. Now, I want to look at a different passage in Acts 14 that probably seems to have nothing to do with that. Acts 14, verse 8. At Lystra sat a crippled man, lame from birth, who had never walked in his life. The man listened while Paul was speaking. Paul fixed his eyes on him and saw that he had faith to be cured. And he said to him in a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he sprang up and started to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their native Laconian, The gods had come down to us in human form. And they called Barabbas Juniper, Jupiter, and Paul they called Mercury, because he was the spokesman. And the priest of Jupiter, whose temple was outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and he and all the people were about to offer sacrifice. Now, those passages seem very different, um, but what I wanted to talk about, I guess you can tell from the title of this talk, is something that's very intriguing for literary scholars, 
And something I think the Christians need to know about, because if you go on the internet, there's a lot of discussion of these uh, issues. But let me back up and just talk a little bit about the timeline. All right. Now this is, of course, all these dates are debatable because we, the further you go back in history, the less everything is certain. Uh, But we do know that um, the dates of Jesus being born on 1 AD is wrong and that he was born earlier than that. Uh, This one says 8 BCE, um, based on the references in the Gospels to Tiberius, to Caiaphas, to Pontius Pilate, to John the Baptist. So you can see about when these people lived. What's important for literary historians, though, is how far you have to scroll down before you begin to see anything like books of the Bible. So by 49, you see the epistle to the Thessalonians would have been the first book of the Bible written. Then Galatians, Corinthians, etc. But you have to scroll even further down before you start to see the writing of the Gospels. Um, there's Mark, about AD 70. There's Luke, about 85 to 95. And the book of Acts, about that time. There's Revelation. Uh, this is the, when the Christian church accepted some of the Old Testament. There's Matthew, maybe 80 to 100. And Gospel of John. I've seen dated in the 90s, sometimes dated in the early 100s. So, Notice which one is the very, very latest. John. And I know if you've read the Gospels, they call the first three synoptics because they have a similar point of view. Same eye, synopt, one eye. But John is very, very different from the very beginning. And it's heavily influenced in terms of literary structure by Greek thought, much more than the other books. So, based on this kind of intriguing idea, Literary scholars are looking to see the surrounding kind of stories and traditions of Greek culture and how they might have influenced New Testament culture. All right, so as a background, when you're interpreting the Bible's literature, it entails looking at literary influence. One of the things that we do in the field is look to see what other things happen. For instance, we know that uh, the story of Hamlet was much older than Shakespeare's story. It was actually a traditional tale told in Denmark, and he heard about it, and he used it. Interestingly, right after he lost his son, named Hamnet. So, obviously, something clicked in his brain, and he thought, and it's interesting, the whole play is about fathers and sons, if you know the play. It's all about fathers and sons. So uh, it's very interesting to look at that and to see the influence. In the original story, Hamlet um, sees the death of his, actually sees his uh, uncle kill his father, and he pretends to be mentally handicapped until he becomes of age and then kills the uncle. And, of course, Shakespeare played with that or whatever. But the whole idea of this is the same kind of thing uh, because... One question that drives literary scholars and other kinds of scholars is to be the influence of Greek ideas on the concepts in the writing of the New Testament. All right, I, when I talked about this before, one of the things that A.D. Nock said 
and uh, my professor, my uh, professor of New Testament, had me read this book especially. He said, I want you to read A.D. Nock because he doesn't believe at all. He doesn't believe in God. He's a complete atheist, agnostic, um, does not believe in Christianity at all. And you'll get a, an interesting view of what uh, the influence of Christianity in the world. And what A.D. Knox said, uh, he believed that, that Paul was the actual founder of Christianity, that without Paul, we would not have the Christianity that we have today. And he based that on what I'm going to talk about today. <coughs> what he said was, if you look to see where Christianity took off, it did not take off in its own country of origin. Yes, Israel, for the most part, Jewish people did not accept Christianity for the most part. Where did it catch on? Yeah, the Greeks. And Paul himself was raised as a Greek. He was trained as a Greek. And he was much more Greek. Well, he was kind of Greek Pharisee in almost equal proportions. But even Pharisees got their ideas from, guess what? Greeks. The Greeks believed in resurrection. Jews did not. But by the time of the Christian period, Pharisees believed in resurrection. Sadducees still didn't. And when you read that in the New Testament, you're like, why wouldn't the Sadducees believe in it? The Sadducees b didn't believe in it because they believed only the first five books of the Old Testament were valid. And that all those things, all those ideas that had accrued later, the idea of Satan, the idea of resurrection, were not Jewish ideas. Okay, so Paul lives in the time of the Pax Romana. Everybody know what that means? I wrote it on there, but see if you could be smart and get it before you read the little parentheses. <laughs> or the Peace of Rome, Pax Romana. An easy one. <laughs> Pax, Peace, Romana, Rome. <clears throat> Which meant, it, it's an ironic title. It means basically they warred and warred and warred until finally they conquered everybody and now there was peace. <laughs> but the Romans had just overlaid Alexander's kingdom. Yes, he had taken over the world, the similar parts of the world. And his idea of conversion to, uh, his idea of rule was, it's easier to rule people if they're just like you. So teach them your language, make it, th they have to speak your language in any legal capacities. And uh, build your own structures, your own libraries, your own bathhouses, and basically make them Greek. And by the time of the New Testament, Israel was completely a Greek culture. And it was so much so that people did not know Hebrew anymore, and they had to translate the Bible into Greek, the Septuagint. So I, we can't imagine this today, but can you imagine America being taken over by another culture to the point that no one even knows American English anymore? And they're speaking the language of that new country. And that all the traditions, all the playhouses, all the government offices are speaking that other language. This is the state that Israel was in. Now, that's a bad thing and a good thing. It's a good thing because everybody across the Mediterranean basin speaks one language. They have other languages that they speak in their homes, but they all speak Greek. And so Paul is able to travel and go to these different places. Before that time, there's no way that he could have made sense in all of these different cultures. In a sense, it's kind of like English is today. So, Paul was smart enough to translate the gospel into terms that Greeks could understand. 
All right, so this is the part of the world. They called this the world. <laughs> now it's definitely not the whole world, but this is what Rome ruled, and this is, and this is exactly where Paul went. He went all through these areas and into Rome. He planned to go to Spain, so his, his idea was to completely cover the whole Mediterranean basis. Okay, so Mark and Matthew, the earliest two uh, of the Gospels, the earlier Gospels, are geared uh, more to the Jewish concept of the Messiah. And if you read them as that, you see that Jesus is depicted as a faithful Pharisaic Jew, and that the issue is mostly a Jewish issue, and he is the Jewish Messiah. And that's what they're uh, about. When you read Luke and John, though, you see that there's been a change to happen. For one thing, Luke is a Greek. He writes excellent Greek. And although these names are names that we put on them later, we're not sure who the real authors were, um, we know, we can tell that Luke, the writer of Luke and Acts, because of what he does, he shows the church beginning in Jerusalem, but by the time you finish Acts, the church has moved to Antioch. It's in Syria. The Christian church did not catch on in Israel. It became uh, a part of Greek culture and was in Syria. Interesting today given the status of Syria, that that actually is more the home of the Christian church, much more than Jerusalem. And by the time Jerusalem fell, <coughs> when it was destroyed in 70 AD, Christians had already pretty much left. Jesus had told them, when you see the eagle outside of the city, go, and guess what the symbol of Rome is? Yeah, so when they saw the eagle, <laughs> goodbye, and they moved to Antioch. So a lot of the Christians didn't die when they destroyed the city. John appears much later, and it's a time when actually the split between Christians and Jews has happened. It's over. So you don't get the same emphasis that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Now we get that Jesus is, as I read to you, the word of God. This is a Greek idea from a Jewish philosopher named Philo who wanted to unify Greek thought and Christian thought, similar, Dante, similar to what Dante did later. Um, so he believed that God could not ever have anything to do with matter. Does that make any sense? Couldn't have anything to do with the physical matter of the world. So God is spirit, and he creates our souls, but matter, he can't have anything to do with. And because of that, there's an intermediary. And so he said that the word of God was the intermediary. The creation of matter was because of God's word, and so therefore God didn't directly touch matter. Now, you could debate this, and, 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 and people have, but we can see that that's where John gets the beginning of his gospel. When he says he's the word, he's saying this is the instrument of creation that Philo was talking about. Okay. The Jews did not believe in resurrection traditionally. They believed in Sheol, and that's, uh, there's only one mention of any kind of resurrection in the Old Testament, it's in Daniel, and Daniel was one of the last books to be accepted into the Old Testament. There were many that did not want to put it in, just like many Christians did not want to put Revelation in the Bible. For various reasons, you can look at that yourself. But the ancient belief was Sheol, that everyone died and they all went to the same place, and it was just a place of dust and death and darkness. <coughs> but in the time between the Testaments, there's about a 300-year period before the time of Christ. 
that's when the belief in resurrection emerged, mostly among the Pharisees. But they also believed that it was only a resurrection of the Jews. So, it was, and it was not a person-to-person, it was not an individual salvation, it was a Jewish salvation. And they believed that, and it was all tied up in the idea of the Messiah. So they call it Olam Haba, the world to come, and that would be instituted by the Messiah. And you can see that that carries on into the New Testament. Uh, the Mishnah, uh, some, some Jewish writings, say the world is like a lobby before the Olam Haba. So prepare yourself in the lobby that you may enter the banquet hall. Very similar language to what Jesus says later. So, developed concepts of the resurrection of the dead and afterlife entered into Judaism under Hellenistic influence. And it became one of the fundamental beliefs in rabbinic Judaism, uh, the intellectual successors of the Pharisees. Uh, one thing that, uh, that we're often ignorant of in, in this time is that uh, the whole the emergence of the synagogue structure happened after the temple was destroyed um, the first time. So there, it's been, there's been several conquerings in the 700s and the 500s um, where Israel was completely destroyed and then returned later. It's again destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Um, so the synagogue structure was a way for the Jews to keep the traditions alive. But in the synagogue structure, it switched from a temple sacrifice system to kind of a more Greek-influenced way of looking at the world. And it becomes, if you know the Shimon Yisrael, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, the prayer that uh, Jews traditionally say every day, at least male Jews, um, refers to an afterlife and the resurrection. But that idea wasn't there. Okay, a lot of times we, we say that this was a pagan idea, but we don't even understand what the word pagan is. Pagan is from the Latin pagani, which means outsider or foreigner. So originally it meant a non-Roman. If you were a Roman citizen, everyone else was what? Pagani. And therefore, not that important. <laughs> a dismissive term. When, of course, Christianity becomes the state religion of Rome, then... Christians become Romans and everybody else becomes pagans. But you have to remember at the time of Christ, the Jews believed in a pagan religion to the Romans. It was a non-Roman religion. And the goal was to get your religion recognized by the Romans so it was no longer pagan but recognized by the Roman system. And the Romans had reluctantly um, given some status as a religion to Judaism, very reluctantly, and there was a lot of tension there. <coughs> now, we're kind of getting to the point. In the ancient world, the Gentiles, or they, uh, Paul calls them the Greeks, which is a little confusing because um, there were Jewish Greeks. There were, you know, it's like Hispanic nowadays. It doesn't mean a lot other than they speak a similar language. Um, but Gentiles were familiar with the ideas of death and resurrection, and they even had blood baptisms and rebirths and cultic rituals for the gods Sibyl and Attis that involved rebirth through the bathing of the blood of bulls. And they also had ceremonies around the eating of food offered to idols. And if you know all this, this helps uh, reading of the New Testament make so much more sense. Paul 
is very concerned in First Corinthians, and he's uh, concerned in the book of Acts about uh, Christians eating food offered to idols. What he meant was it was something simple. The food was first offered to idols. The best parts were taken and burned, and the other parts were put into the market. And Christians were like, well, can we eat that or not? And he was, he was saying on one hand, sure, it's just meat. <laughs> There's no idol. <laughs> so you could. And he said, on the other hand, it's going to be confusing for people seeing you eat food offered to idols, so try to eat other food. But for the modern reader, food offered idols, what, do you, what are you talking about? In the Greek tradition, they had very, very similar tradition to the Lord's Supper, where they would partake of meals in the honor of the gods. And that's the basic issue, is that, um, and in fact, early Christians were condemned as being cannibals because they thought they were actually eating the body of Christ. And, but it wasn't that dissimilar from Greek beliefs. All right, the most important connection that I want to talk about today is that the Greeks had many, not just, in Greeks we're we're speaking about Greek-speaking people all over the Mediterranean, okay? So not people that live in Greece. In fact, there is no such place as Greece yet on the map. The most important connection they had was the sacrificial or dying God. Traditional Jews would scoff at the idea of God becoming man, and you can see that's the very issue of contention at the beginning of the New Testament, isn't it? Uh, this is why uh, when, when Stephen and Paul and others stand up to say that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died for your sins and that he has God become human, this is why they wanted to kill them. This was blasphemy. That a human becoming God. And you remember the thinking I was just talking about. This is the material world, Right? And God can't live in the material world. The Jewish people could not truck with that idea. But Greek Christians were open to this idea because they already had these traditions. All right. They had what we now call the mystery cults. Um, Philosophers in the ancient world were were spiritual masters of the inner mysteries. At the heart of the mysteries were myths concerning a dying and resurrected God-man known by different names. And the guy in the picture there is, is, is Mithras. In Egypt, he was Osiris. In Greek, Dionysus. In Asia, Meyer, Attis. In Syria, Adonis. In Italy, Bacchus. In Persia, Mithras. Now, you can look across that list, and those are all, except for Egypt, exactly where Paul went. All right, I thought it would be useful to look at a couple of them. This was not supposed to appear all at once, but anyway. (coughs) Now, there's a lot of debate today, and we'll get to that later, about how influential these ideas were, whether these were truly dying and resurrecting gods. But the important thing for, when I teach the Bible's literature, the important thing for us to consider is that there were these other ideas of dying and resurrected gods. Whether they were exactly like Christianity is not that important, whether they all added up to something like Christianity is not that important. What's important is that they were there and that Paul used that knowledge to communicate. Notice that in the passage that I read, what happened? Paul was interpreted through that lens, right? They must be God on earth. So the Greeks didn't have any trouble with this idea that God could appear on earth. All right, so 
Addis is one of them. <coughs> and his, he went from an area outside of Rome to finally becoming highly worshipped in Rome up through about 400 A.D. Like Adonis, he appears to be a god of vegetation, and his death and resurrection were annually mourned and rejoiced in the festival in spring. You could probably guess about March 25th. The legends and the rites of the two gods were so much alike, the ancients can sometimes identify them as the same. Addis is said to be a fair young shepherd or a herdsman, beloved by Sybil, the mother of the gods, <coughs> great Asiatic goddess of fertility. His birth was on December 25th, and it's said to have been miraculous. His mother, Nana, was a virgin, conceived by putting a ripe almond or pomegranate in her bosom. Now, again, <coughs> some have argued and said, well, this isn't a true virgin birth, but it is because the God is inseminating her through the pomegranate. It's not as ridiculous as just she's holding a pomegranate because that would terrify a lot of women, I think. <laughs> I held a pomegranate, oh no! <laughs> okay, but she was, a, you know, a, supposed to be a virgin, and she is impregnated by the god. Osiris is not impregnated by the god, but there's other things that are similar. Uh, the ancient, uh, and of course, the belief in Osiris predates. It goes back way beyond the time of some of the writing of the Old Testament. So it was a belief in the divinity, death, and resurrection, absolute control of destinies, the bodies, and souls of men. Central point of Osarian religion was the hope of resurrection in a transformed body of immortality, which could only be realized by him through the death and resurrection of Osiris. It's the most elaborate and influential story in ancient mythology. So how does the story go? The, the god Osiris is murdered by his brother, Set. And uh, Osiris' wife restores his husband, her husband's body. Set cuts up the body and he leaves it, leaves it all over Egypt. So Isis, it's a pretty tale. She searches for a, a pretty morbid but pretty you know, beautiful tale. She's, so, she's in love with him and she finds the parts of his body. She puts him back together and impregnates herself on him. Okay, you know, we just got to go with the story here. <laughs> and has a son who avenges his father. So the whole idea of the father, son, you know, the father and the mother having the son, or the son of God, that idea is there. And you see often in pictures of, um, of them that they're depicted as a, as a trinity, holy trinity. The remainder of the story focuses on Horus, who is their son, the product of Isis and Orsas' union, whose first vulnerable child, protected by his mother, and then he wins and restores order and completes the process of Osiris' resurrection and Osiris becomes the lord of the dead. All right, I thought I'd look at one more. This is Mithras. It was practiced in the Roman Empire from about first to fourth centuries and it's from, uh, it's a Persian god. And worshippers of Mithras had a complex system of seven grades of initiation. It's interesting, the seven was also a huge part of early Christian thought. Uh, and if you, <coughs> seven levels of heaven and the seven spheres, and there's seven planets. Astrology is built on the seven. So, um, and they didn't make any big distinction between astrology and um, religion at the time. All right, so they had... Um, 
But they had seven grades of initiation with ritual meals. And there again, we see the ritual meals. They called themselves the Syndexoi, united by the handshake, which I think is a pretty good name, isn't it? We're united by the handshake. And they met in underground temples. Does any of this sound familiar? Which survived in large numbers. And they had its center in Rome. The Mithraic Mysteries had no public ceremonies of its own, but uh, the festival of Natalis Invicti, the birth of the unconquerable sun, held on December 25th, there you go, there it is again, was a general festival of the sun and by no means specific to the cult of Mithras. All right, so where did this whole idea come from <coughs> that there were these similarities? Well, there was a book published called The Golden Bough. <coughs> And largely up until the time of this book, most people were ignorant of these other cults and religions, or most people in the street were ignorant of these things. Prior to the birth of Christianity, the ancient world was full of mythology, rituals, and ceremonies, conformably levels with what became fundamental doctrines of Christianity. It's unknown by many Christians today or ignored, but it's been a common understanding since 1890 when he published his book. Anybody read The Golden Bough? You've heard of it? Heard of it or read it or both? <laughs> I used to have a friend of mine referred to it all the time. Well, that's in the Golden Bow. And I was like, what is this book? And this volume now universally recognizes the classic. Fraser became the first mainstream scholar to highlight common themes found throughout the myths and legends of many different cultures, themes that predated Christianity but were still very similar, most important being the story of a dying and rising God. Now, of course, this leads to problems because this is going to lead some scholars to say, obviously, Christianity is derivative of these other stories or an imitative of the other stories or an interpretation of the other stories, which, of course, is going to be troubling to anyone who claims to be what? Christian. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up today, even though I feel a little stupid even talking about some of this in a church, is because it's out there. It's been out there since 1890, and it's kind of a good idea to have some idea how people have responded to this controversy. Because, of course, some people respond to say Christianity is hoo-ha, right? That it's just another one of these stories that caught on, um, that just lasted a little longer than the other stories. Because undoubtedly, you know, in the argument from that point of view, undoubtedly these people of that time period believed in what they believed in enough to do things like one of the acts of worship for them was uh, to have a bull sacrificed and to, to bathe in the blood of the bull and to be born again. So they were very serious about these um, practices. Okay, but enough on that. Now, there's a guy named Jay-Z Smith who challenged the Golden Bough. <coughs> he said that uh, the entire category of dying and rising gods is a fabrication and that all the deities placed in this category upon close inspection proved either gods who disappeared and returned but did not die or deities who died and then never rose. I don't think he's right, but I do think that he was right to say that there is no exact blueprint. It's not like Addis and Jesus are the same or Mithra. You know what I'm saying? If we had an exact blueprint, it would be highly suspect. But it, when, it, when it looks like just things are kind of mixed together, that's a little different. Um, 
but yeah, I do think that some of them were dead and resurrected, and he's not quite right. But, <coughs> but Smith claims that either it was one or the other, either they disappeared and returned but did not die, or died and never rose. So he claims that Jesus is unique and that he died and rose. Now what he is convinced, and he's probably you know, right in saying this, strong, that, that Fraser was strongly influenced by the wish to demonstrate that Christianity was not an innovation, but in all its essential features are to found in earlier religions. Okay, so what we, we, what we can't doubt is historically there were these other religions and that they do bear some remarkable resemblance. Now some of it can be very easily explained, like December 25th. March 25th and December 25th have been hallowed by humans time immemorial because we all have lived in the seasons, right? They're, right, they're the days that are right after the darkest of the year and the beginning of the spring, yes? So doesn't it make sense that humans all over the world are going to pick pretty much those two dates? They understood when the, when the sun was at its um, perigee, apogee. And they understood... Um, equinoxes and that kind of thing. So it makes sense that they're going to do that. We also know historically that uh, although the church, the early church, knew for a fact that Jesus was not born on December 25th, that they put it there because that was the date of the birth of the son already celebrated. And they couldn't get rid of it, so they just kind of overlaid it. A lot of times people will say to me, well, uh, Christmas is a Christian holiday that's been overlaid with pagan. And I'm like, no, it's a pagan holiday that was overlaid with Christian. <laughs> so I'll leave it to you whether you want to have the tree in your house or not. But the tree is definitely not Christian. In fact, nothing about it, our celebration of Christmas is Christian, um, except for the birth of Jesus. But none of the traditions, they were all there before. Easter was the same thing. It was a celebration of a mother goddess. And of course, her sacred animals would be what? It's obvious. What would be the best symbol of birth? Eggs and rabbits. <laughs> rabbits are all over the world. They're all throughout the Mediterranean Gulf. Everybody knows rabbits. So these animals were sacred to her. So it's, her name was Easter. One of the goddesses, one of her, one of her Germanic names was Erda, is where we get Earth. So she's still called Mother Earth. If you ever wonder, well, who's this Mother Earth? That's the mother goddess. We still have that there. Have you ever wondered who you're wishing to in a wishing well? It's Mother Earth. It's the Earth goddess. Because um, I remember as a kid, nobody told me I was asking Jesus when I, you know, my dad would say, throw a penny in there, you'll get your wish. Nobody said, Jesus will grant your wish, or you know what I'm saying, or Santa Claus. Nobody knew who was doing this. Our culture just sort of pulled the mother goddess idea out of the culture. Even though there was a time from about 7th to 9th century where Mary was pretty much the third person of the Trinity. And there was a lot of battles over whether or not she really was. But that's another story. <laughs> Let's get back to this story. Okay, so some of this makes sense, doesn't it? We know that the church purposely picked those days. In fact, when we celebrate Easter, we do it on the wrong day because they follow the solar calendar of the Romans and not the lunar calendar of the Jews. You've probably wondered why Passover hardly ever is at Easter. Have you noticed that when you're looking at your calendar, like Passover's here, Easter's here, what the heck's going on there? 
Well, they went with the Roman one because that was the day already part of Roman culture, and they overlaid it. Okay. One of the things I learned in my degree is that often life is a matter of, of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Yes? We heard this theory, Hegel's theory of dialectic. Yes? Somebody comes up with an idea, other people don't like that idea, so they get completely against that idea and, and formulate themselves against that idea, and then what eventually happens? They pull together. I'm still waiting for that to happen in our government. <laughs> we never seem to get synthesis. <laughs> we just have antithesis, antithesis. But that's the way history goes. Yes? So ideas that are crazy at one time have this counterprose crazy idea, and eventually we end up believing something in between. Yeah? You said something that I got you off my chest. You said that nothing that we do uh, at Christmas time is doing celebrating Christianity. No, I'm saying the, tra the traditions. Of course, we do things that are dedicated. Okay, well, let me ask you about this one. I never, I've only learned in the last few years, but we always uh, do the Advent for four weeks. For right. That is Christian, yes. <laughs> We're celebrating the second coming, predicting the second coming, the way I understand it. Yeah, and, uh, okay, yeah, I don't mean to overstate here. Of course, Christians do Christian things on Christmas, but it's the, you know, the tree, the holly, all those things are from the other, what we later called the pagan religions. And most of them are from the beliefs of the Scandinavian peoples. They believe that certain trees, because they were green all year, were sacred. So they worshiped outside under trees, and therefore they didn't pull them in their house. They put lights on them, and now we <laughs> pull them in the house. <laughs> but they would put candles on them, decorate them. They believed that, that the, the white of the mistletoe was, oh boy, I don't know if I want to go into that. Let's just say it's a male symbol, and I'll let you figure that out. And then the red of the holly tree was a female symbol, and therefore they became sacred to them. Um, I just think that's all very interesting. And it gets confusing if you want to try to have a true Christian holiday, because I just want to say to people, but it wasn't to begin with, so don't worry about it too much. Maybe you should go ahead and, and look at the eggs and, and just say, well, it's fun, and it's traditional, and it isn't attached to anything anymore. Because um, I've seen people get bent out of shape about that, too, right? We have to have a Christian holiday, so therefore we're not going to even give gifts because that's a, that was a pagan idea, and it was. But on the other hand, you're like, but you're, there's no fun anymore. <laughs> so maybe we need a synthesis, yes? And that's pretty much what we've got today, right? We have a blend of these things. All right, but back to Mediter's response because I don't want to leave us all hanging going, okay, well, what the heck is going on with this? All right, so Manger says in his book, The Riddle of Resurrection, he searches through, he's, he's like, which one of these two people are right? One guy says, you know, all these dying and rising gods are just sort of, uh, the Christianity is kind of an imitator of these things. The other guy says Christianity is unique and has nothing to do with those other stories. And he says, I'm going to look at it all myself. 
So he goes all the way back to the Ugaritic Baal, called Hercules, Adonis, Eshbon, because there are even more. If you look at Babylonian studies, Damuzi Thomas is also a dying and resurrected God, um, and these predated the Bible times. The Old Testament. Okay, so he says the question is simple. Is there evidence, literary or scriptural, ritual, mythological, that any of these gods were ever understood by the people that worshipped them as having actually died and returned to life again? It's a simple question, but he doesn't believe that the reaction against Fraser was honest about it. So what does he conclude? All right, the end of his book, he says that there's a strange connection between Christianity and the dying and rising gods of paganism. However, he does not believe that the existence of pre-Christian phenomena must necessarily mean the non-existence of Jesus Christ in New Testament Christianity. So he writes this. There is, as far as I am aware, no prima facie evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a mythological construct drawing on the myths and rites of the dying and rising gods of the surrounding world. Now, if I stop in the middle of his quote, that's one of the things that's important about that verse in John that I read you. When he says, and the word became what? Flesh. Flesh. He's making a different claim um, than a lot of these. He's working against what Philo said, that the word could never become flesh, right? But that it did. And also the fact that the writers of the Bible wrote historical accounts based in real people. Yes. So there was never a claim that he was, the claim was always that he was historical. Yes. When you read the story of Adonis or Addis or Mithras, they're mythological stories. This is a story of a, of a man who was born of, but when did he live? Uh, we don't know. Sometime. There's no mention like Augustus Caesar. <laughs> yes. So, there is a difference. And how do we add that up? Okay, let me read the rest of his quote. While studied with profit against the background of Jewish resurrection beliefs, the faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus retains its unique character in the history of religion. The riddle remains. So he takes a nice synthesis position. Say there is influence here, and we know that Paul used it as a way to get in. You already know about a dying and rising God. Let me tell you about the real dying and rising God. And he connected into what they already knew and what they already believed. All right. Anybody read any G.K. Chesterton? Oh, we have fans. I became quite a fan of his when I was in college. Um, now today, his, uh, the people he influenced are much more popular you know two, who two of the people he influenced were? J.R.R. Tolkien. Hmm. I think maybe he's had some influence on culture. Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit. And also C.S. Lewis. Heavily, in, I don't know, we get Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Is the next one going to be made or not? I think it's, was not the Voyage of the Dawn Treader was made, so I don't, I'm not sure what the next one is. Read them all when I was in college. Chesterton said this, and I encourage you to read what he said in fuller detail. He says, in answer to the historical query of why it was accepted and is accepted, I answered for millions of others in my reply, because it fits the lock, because it is like life. It is one among many stories, only it happens to be a true story. 
It is one among many philosophies, only it happens to be the truth. C.S. Lewis said this, here and here only in all time the myth must become fact, the word God flesh, the word flesh, God man. What Lewis said was, and of course he's just, you know, this is just conjecture on his part, but basically um, he says that God, God himself planted these ideas around the world so that when the real thing happened, people would be ready. One thing I like about Lewis is he does that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and sometimes his discussions, I think, are, take, are seen as kind of liberal by some of the church, but they make sense. They're very reasonable. One of the things he also said to me that made uh, a lot of sense is uh, he believed that you know, this whole idea that you cannot be saved without knowing the name of Jesus. And he said the name of Jesus is, is, is not necessarily being able to say those words, but the idea. And so he believes that Jesus is at work all over the world. Whereas, you know, some people are like, well, we've got to bring the name of Jesus. And he believed that, well, that's a pretty small idea. I mean, couldn't Jesus be working in the Muslim world? Couldn't Jesus be working in Africa right now? Planting seeds just like he did before with those little stories. Okay, so that's his idea. Some people may not agree, but I think Lewis is definitely an interesting guy to read for trying to explain these, uh, to not explain away, but to explain these problems. Am I done? No, I have a question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Honey, you're finished, man. No, you're not finished. We'll, we'll, we'll let you know. I'm not even Swedish. No, you're, you've I'm got, Welsh. You've got almost, you've got 15 minutes. Um, the statement that you just made a little bit ago about C.S. Lewis saying that, that God may have planted these other stories and mythologies in order to make it the truth, truthful story more easily accepted. Now that to me is no more of a miracle to believe in than what Paul says about scripture itself, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. Right. If I can believe that miracle, I don't have any problem believing the miracle that God orchestrated through centuries of mythology and story to, to, to make the ground more fertile for the truthful story that was to come. It's, it's not a difficult leap for me to make. Yeah. I, I can believe both of those miracles, even though the, the, the one that C.S. Lewis is referring to, this preparation of mythology, is not overtly stated in scripture. No. I can still believe that it's part of God's orchestration. Well, that's what I, I like about Lewis is he's reasonable, but of course you could always attack him for saying, but there's no scriptural basis for what he's saying. And there probably isn't. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> but I'm just trying to tell you, this is what some of the famous scholars have said in response to this. I. I think that all of us should be aware that there are these other stories. Nobody wants to get blindsided with this, do you? You know, if you're talking to someone about your relationship with Christ, you can't, you don't want them going, well, isn't that just Adonis in disguise and having no idea what they're talking about? It's probably a good idea to at least know about it. So for one, it's, uh, it's problematic. For another, it's not. Okay, J.R. Tolkien said, this story is supreme and it is true. Art has been verified. Legend and history have met and fused. So he takes, he was influenced as well by Chesterton. Um, now, I, I'm gonna suggest this book to you. 
uh, not, it, it's not edifying necessarily. <laughs> but if you're interested in what I've been talking about, um, this writer is not so interested in the issues that I just talked about in terms of the precursors of Christianity and the Greek thought that was before and very similar. But what he actually takes on is, all right, what is our actual physical evidence of the existence of and the ministry of Jesus? And I've seen books about the existence of and I've seen others, but he goes through step by step of the ministry of. Now, I'm not, I don't know if you would be thrilled by everything that he says. I know it wasn't necessarily, and there were times that I went like, ah, that's a stretch. But what I liked about it was, uh, well, an Amazon reader pretty much said what I thought as well. Wilson is a master delivering the most information in the fewest words, which is nice for this kind of book. I mean, he wants to read a 300-page book when you can read this lesser page. His style is fascinating and clearly credible. That's what I like about him. I, as a historian, I originally was educated as a historian. And as a historian, um, I appreciate that he looks for facts. He looks for details. He goes to the sources. What is the evidence that actually the man Jesus lived? What is the evidence of the church? What is the evidence of his ministry? Um, how could we interpret it? What did it mean in the context of the time? So, um, and even more interesting, as the reader said, I, I simply had to read this book in, in two settings. I came away, I didn't read it very quickly myself. It, it was very interesting. I came away with an excellent understanding of the short version of remarkably complex research material. And notice that the book he wrote before is called Shroud of Turin. So, of course, he mentions in there, you know, um, is the Shroud of Turin evidence, blah, blah, blah. I'll let you all find that out. You can go pick up the book. It's only $4 on Amazon. <laughs> Not a huge seller. <laughs> I bought it at a markdown store myself. But I, I don't know about you, but these books kind of stand out. You, know, like, you ever have a book, you just look at it and go, it's going read me? You know what I'm talking about? I'll be looking at a bookshelf and there'll be a book and I'll just keep seeing that title. Just keep seeing it, keep seeing it. It's like, okay, I gotta read that book. This is one of those books. All right, so I tried to do what I did, which is to end a little bit early so that we could have some kind of conversation. Okay, let me also say too that there are problems with the reactions. You know what I'm saying? I'm kind of leaning toward as a scholar, I'm leaning toward it's still a puzzle. It's kind of a mystery how it all fits together. Lewis seems a little bit of an easy answer, where Fraser seems a little bit of an easy answer. Am I making any sense? I think everything's more intertwined than that. Okay. When you're talking about the name of Jesus, when you think about what it means, God saves, I'd say to anybody that knows that that realizes that the earth isn't going to save us, humans aren't going to, and they've come to the conclusion that the other saves us, is living out Jesus' name, whether yeah. they know the name Jesus or not. That's what he says, it, it, that they know who Jesus is, they just... Yes. And for me, that's intriguing because I teach linguistics, and one of the things that I ask my students is, can you know someone without knowing their name? 
Because there are times where you want to say that, don't you? I said that to you too this morning. I know you. I don't remember your name. <laughs> uh, so there is a real sense to where I can know someone and not know their name. That's a good thing because I run into former students all the time. And I don't remember their name, but I know them. I know their work. I know who they are. Are you acquainted with Raymond Brown, and do you, how would you assess him as a view of New Testament as literature? Don't know Raymond Brown. Raymond Brown? Happy to look it up, him up, but no, I don't know Raymond Brown. This uh, idea of, of uh, God preparing us with these mysteries and myths and other cultures and so forth so we'd be ready for the big uh, push uh, when the true uh, idea comes in with Christ uh, is very intriguing to me. And as I was sitting here, I went back and thinking about some of my best professors. Uh, they all start out with that kind of a thing. Give us something that we could put our grasp on yeah. and then build on it. And, you know, I think that must be a, I never realized that. It, that must be a universal uh, way of doing things for teachers. Yeah. Yes? It is. Start with what you know. The other thing that probably be fair to bring up uh, is that we're acting and talking like the church had any idea what the church was. And they didn't. There were many, many debates in the early church, and that's what I'll talk about next week. So there were even uh, alternate gospels um, that you can still read some of them today <coughs> that were around. My students get all excited about alternate gospels because they're like, well, there must be some reason we're not supposed to read this. And they, they want to read them. And so they have that advantage. Um, point being that things like the virgin birth were actually decided in whether God became human in Jesus were decided in councils of the church historically. There were other Christians who did not believe that, who would have called themselves Christians. Some of them martyred in the early church for their faith in Christ, who believed in a different version of Christ than a lot of us would take for granted today. Then again, you have to think, well, even today we have Catholicism and Protestantism who have very different versions of, of an Eastern Orthodox all coexisting at the same time. So we still haven't, we haven't made up our minds exactly what Christianity is. And the early Christians struggled with these things. And they decided through councils and sometimes through just simply killing people who disagreed. This was not a pretty story. Um, and I often wonder, well, what would Christianity look like if we'd had tolerated more of the different views of the early church? But it just didn't happen. There had to be a winner, and eventually Rome won. And the, uh, Rome won through a thinking of there has to be one unified Catholic universal faith. And they pretty much killed everybody that disagreed. And, and some of them, a lot of us today would not uh, disagree with, uh, with what they were saying. Uh, like Pelagius believed that people were fundamentally good because God made them. And of course, uh, the other scholars said, no, we're fundamentally sinful because we fell. Are both people right? Yes. <laughs> you know, we are fundamentally good because God made us. 
fundamentally sinful because we fell, but that still doesn't change the fact, what? That we're fundamentally good um, because God made us. But the way the church solved the problem, they killed Pelagius. And so I can't sidestep all of that either. The church was still figuring out what was orthodox, what was not orthodox. And so I'm sure these Greek ideas got in there in their interpretations and how they thought, yeah. You, you quoted a while ago those few verses in, I'll say Acts chapter 17, where Paul is in Athens and he start, starts, men of Athens, I see you are religious folks. Well, though, that whole account of what Paul does there in trying to persuade the, 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 the true God as opposed to the mythological statuary that he was standing among uh, and, and talking to these people in Athens. Those verses have always been favorites of mine. You've added an, another layer to some understanding of that, this idea of God preparing people with mythological story. Paul uses that knowledge. Yeah. In a profound way, Paul being a master of knowing his audience in his letters and in his exhortations all throughout his ministry, he knew his audience. And there he was in this hotbed of religious thought, which we call mythology now, but which was believed by those people. Mm -hmm. Paul uses that as the starting point to attract people to the true Christian God that he served. And, and, I, and I'll never read those verses the same way. I've got a new layer of understanding because of your teaching today. Yeah, it, well, even more interesting, like the section that I read, he wasn't in Athens, but when he goes to Athens, this is the only place we know of he was a complete flop. But he tried. And it's, <laughs> it's brilliant what he does. They have a, uh, there's uh, statues of all these gods, and there's one that's like to an unknown god. They're just covering their bases. We probably forgot somebody's god, so we're just going to have a statue to an unknown god. And he says, Jesus, you know, that, that the revelation of Jesus, this is the unknown god. Um, clever idea. But the Athenians were very jaded. They were probably the most educated people on the planet. And they also, they knew their philosophy and... <laughs> So they weren't very religious. And so the, the idea of appealing to the religion didn't really work. They were a more secular society in a lot of ways. But it did work well in Thessalonica, Corinth, and other places, yeah. I just remember my professor talking about, this is one of his most brilliant speeches, and it's a big flop. And he is so disappointed. He looks at it as like, they're just so jaded. And it reminds me of the modern world, of course, because... Uh, you know, they were the hub, other than Rome, this would have been the hub of the world. And he was so convinced that he wanted to win over that hub. Didn't really work. They were metropolitan. <laughs> well, it may have worked in God's time. <laughs> Eventually. Yeah. And yeah, of course, now Greece is completely Catholic country, so, you know, Christianity won in that sense. Thank you. Week two next week. Keep your mortarboard dusted. <laughs>
Next time I'll talk a little bit about this with the Gospels.